Good morning, I'm Zach. I'm the student ministries director here at uh, Country Oaks. And this morning we will be in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. So uh, last week I was actually at my parents' church, um, and the, the youth pastor was preaching, and uh, when he introduced himself, he said that it's National Youth Pastor Preaches Week as the main teaching pastors go on vacation, so happy uh, National Youth Pastors Preach Week. Um, so this morning, uh, we're, I want us to, as, because it's the new year, I want us to look at our goal as Christians and what true worship is. So what is our goal as Christians? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 28 that it's that we uh, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then he also says six chapters earlier in Matthew 22 that we should love our Love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our minds. He says, this is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So by doing these two things, what happens? By doing these two things, something happens, and it's, what it is is it's us becoming more like Christ. And as Christians, that should be our goal. Our goal should be to reflect Christ and to become more like him. To live in such a way that others see us and ask what's different, and our response is Jesus Christ. Our response is to point them to Christ and the, the redemption that we find in him. That's, that it should be our goal as Christians, to become more like Christ. In the Bible, that's what we see when we look at Paul and the other, the other New Testament passages, that it's all about sanctification and, and pursuing holiness, and that is part of our worship. Our worship isn't just songs. It's not saying that we do things in Jesus' names. Uh, in Jesus' name, when I was in high school, our, our pastor called it or said that worship is to kiss towards God. And I see worship also as giving glory to God. But part of true worship is becoming more like what we worship. Part of true worship is becoming more like Christ. John Piper says that true worship is valuing or treasuring God above all things. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning and for the chance we get to study your word. I pray that you would speak through me this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. Thank you for this church family um, and the chance that we get to love you better. In Jesus' name, amen. So that leads to the, so all of this, the, what true worship is, the goal of Christianity, leads to the question, how? How does true worship make us more like Christ? Through worship, we are becoming more like something else. And like I said, it's not just about songs or a trendy way to, that's to say that it's to kiss towards God. True worship is striving to reflect something else. Striving to become something that you see is better than where you're at now. And that's why when we see a little kid that's worshiping an athlete, we say that they worship them because they're mimicking everything. They walk and they talk like them. 
and they try to do the same moves. They try to emulate what the athlete does. Or when we see a son and we say that he worships his father, it's the same thing. It's probably why people say I have the same laugh as my dad. Um, but that's because we want to reflect them. We see that as, as something to strive for, and in doing so, we worship and lift them up above all things. In a way, worship is the process of becoming like someone or something else. And that's what we'll see in, in Isaiah 6, but before we get there, we need to understand the context of what's going on in the book of Isaiah. So at this time, it's a time of change and transition in Israel. It's after a period, when Isaiah was the prophet, it was after a period of prosperity with two kings, and all of a sudden Israel was under threat from Assyria. And then Israel falls to Assyria and remains under their reign. There's a few fruitless rebellions during uh, Isaiah's time as prophet. And ultimately, that brings us to chapter 6, which is Isaiah's commissioning. But it's this, this commissioning is placed in a weird spot compared to other prophets' books. In Jeremiah and Ezekiel, it's pla- they're, they're placed at the beginning of the books, and then from there is the rest of their teaching. But Isaiah, it, it's five chapters in, or six chapters in, and it comes after Isaiah has already addressed Israel's present sin and gives them a hope for the future. That's what those first five chapters are about, is Isaiah telling Israel that this is their sin, this is why they're going to be punished, this is why they're going to be put in exile, but doesn't leave them without hope. In Isaiah 1, 2 through, uh, Isaiah 1, 2 through 8, it says this, the ox, or it says, Hear, O heavens, and give, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord and they have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Isaiah is telling Israel that every part of them is sick. He says from the, from the sole of the foot all the way up to the head, they are sick and they are sinful. They're children who deal corruptly. They don't see or understand God. I mean, he even says that the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's cribs. Animals know who, who their masters are. Animals understand who they are, they are under authority of, but Israel does not know. Israel does not understand. Israel has turned their back on God. And this is Isaiah urging Israel to follow God, urging Israel to return to true worship of God. But unfortunately for Israel, they, they aren't going to do it. There's, they have turned their backs on God, and they are, have essentially, as we'll see, become what they worshipped. 
They're being punished for a specific sin. And so we need to look at Isaiah 6 to see that punishment and that sin. So Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook, and at the voice of him who called, and and the house was filled with smoke. So Isaiah has this vision while he's in the temple. He's worshiping or, or giving an offering in the temple. And he has this vision that it, he's in the throne room of God. And he's high in, God is high and lifted up sitting on a throne. And his, the train of his robe fills the entire temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six Wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. This image of seraphim uh, for, for us today, at least for me, when I think of seraphim, I, th- I think of the cherubs too. It's the little bite baby flying, or the little babies flying with wings um, that are ornaments on your, on your Christmas trees. But if you look at that word seraphim, it is significantly more terrifying because seraphim means burning one. So it's not this, this happy image of little babies flying around singing. Uh, it's this burning heavenly being that is in the presence of God. And not only that, they're worshiping God, and that's not the scary part, but it says, at the, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the whole house was filled with smoke. So Isaiah's going throughout his day, and he gets this vision And all of a sudden, he's in the presence of God with these burning, heavenly creatures, and everything starts shaking. It is absolutely terrifying, and it's no shock that he responds like this in verse 5. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah recognizes that he is in the presence of God. And it probably came to his mind what God said to to Moses when Moses wanted to see God's glory and God said, I will wipe you out because you are sinful. So Isaiah is standing there thinking that this is the end of him. This is the end and he knows exactly why. He says he is a man of unclean lips and he dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He recognizes his unholiness and the fact that he doesn't belong. He recognized that he does not belong in the throne room of God, and it leads him to repentance. And this is, this recognition of of his unholiness is key to what comes next. In verse 6, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. I believe that, that Isaiah's cry of unholiness, cry of recognition of who he is, is key to the seraphim flying to him and purifying his lips. Purifying him, really, with the coal. And it's not the coal that's significant, but it's, it's the one that the coal symbolizes that's significant when it's talking of, and it's talking about God, because only God can take away our guilt and our sin. 
Only God can do so. And it's not this, it's not this coal like in um, Isaiah, or Isaiah, Indiana Jones when they, they're looking for the Holy Grail and the guy drinks it and he toes poorly. That's, there's no significance in that coal. If we went and tried to find this coal, it would be just a coal. It would be worthless. But God is the one who wipes Isaiah clean of his sin. And it's because he recognized who he is. Israel isn't recognizing who they are. Israel isn't recognizing their status before God. They've turned their back on God. But Isaiah did. And because of that, we see what happens in verse 8. And it says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who, who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Without the purification of Isaiah, he could not have been sent by God. Without the purification of his lips specifically, he couldn't have been a prophet. It makes what he tells Israel so much more significant because God has sent him specifically. This passage, these eight verses, set the tone for what's coming next. These eight verses set the tone for the punishment that God gives to Israel. It's a message that is calling for their repentance, though they won't hear it. It's a message of Isaiah urging them to turn back from their sin, but they won't do it. This, this purification that Israel needs can only come through burning. That's what we saw in Isaiah 1, and that's what we see in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is purified through this burning. So God gives Isaiah his message to Israel in verse 9. He says, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So Isaiah, Isaiah gets this message that he's supposed to give to Israel. And I can't imagine how Isaiah must be feeling in this moment. I mean, he, he is told that his lips are, or he's, he's told that his guilt is taken away, his sin is atoned for, and then God says, who can I send to my people that have turned back, their backs on me? Who's going to do it? And Isaiah willingly says, send me, God. I will be the one to go to the nation. I will be the one to tell my neighbors and my friends and my family to come back and to turn back to you, God. But the message that he gets is one that seems hopeless. God says that, that Isaiah is supposed to say for Israel to keep on hearing, but you're not going to understand Israel. Keep on seeing what God does, but you won't perceive it. Their hearts are going to be dull, their eyes heavy, and their, their, or their ears heavy, and their, blind, uh, their eyes blind. And he says, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And the only question Isaiah asks, the only response that he gives to God is a cry of desperation. He says, how long, O Lord, how long am I going to be speaking to Israel in this way? How long will they have their ears, their eyes, and their hearts darkened and blinded and deafened? How long is this going to go on, God? 
And God's response, God's answer, doesn't give much hope. It says, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. God's response is, until everything is absolutely destroyed. That's how long you're going to preach this message, Isaiah until everything is absolutely desolate. It's a somber message to the people, and it's one that they'll refuse to hear, and one that will only bring anger. And it's one that is inevitable. There's nothing Isaiah can do to change the hearts of the people. And when we look at this passage, the only question I can, I can ask, other than how long, which Isaiah already did, is why? Why would God call Isaiah to give this hopeless, somber, seemingly hopeless and somber message to the people? Well, it's because of what their sin is. Their sin is what's leading to their punishment. It's not just God being acting out of spite. It's because of what Israel has done. The language of Israel becoming deaf and blind and and turned away from God is the same language that's used throughout the Old Testament to describe the idols that Israel worships. Isaiah 2.8 says that the, the land of Israel is filled with idols and that Israel bows to the works of their hands. That Israel has given themselves over to idolatry. They've lifted something else up that they made with their own hands and are worshiping it. Essentially what's going on here is that Israel is becoming what they worship. Isaiah 42 verses 17 to 20 says this. It says, They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, You are our gods. Hear you deaf, and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. And then in Isaiah 43, it's another depiction of deaf people and calls for their witnesses, which is referring to the pagan idols. Isaiah, or Psalm 115 verses 4 to 8 says this. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. Their ear, they have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. These are idols made of silver and gold at the works of human hands. And when we hear that, when we hear that someone is worshiping something they made with their own hands, I mean, it's just like, why? Why would you bow down and worship this carved, carved image of a cow? Why would you bow down and worship this? But then when we look on our own lives, we see the idols that we have. We see the idols, and they may not be carved images, but it's, it's our work, It's our family. It's anything that we lift up before God. These idols are mute. They're blind. They're deaf. They they can't smell. They can't do anything. They are lifeless. And their worshipers become like them. 
It's similar to Romans 1, verse 24, when it says that God is giving the the sinners over to their sin. God is handing Israel over to their sin. He's saying, you know what? If you want that so bad, I'll make you like it. If you're lifting these things up over me, then you can become like it and 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 not become like me. You want it so bad, here it is. He's letting them become lifeless, deaf, and blind. They're becoming what they're worshiping. And isn't isn't that the goal of worship? To become like something we see is better than ourselves? That's the goal of worshiping Christ, that we want to become more like Christ. We want others to see Christ through us. Israel's punishment is spiritual insensitivity. No longer will they hear or understand. They'll hear the words of God, but no longer will they understand it. No longer will they see his works. No longer will they be able to see God. And the land is going to be completely destroyed because of their idolatry. Because they have turned their back on God, the gift that they received from God, this promised land, is going to be made desolate and completely destroyed. But God doesn't leave Isaiah or Israel without hope. Like he always does, there's always hope in the midst of punishment. Isaiah 6.13 says, And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is that stump. After the purification of Israel, after they are burned and burned again, a holy seed will remain. And that holy seed is Jesus Christ. I imagine that Isaiah, when he was in the midst of hearing this message, had to be thinking, what about the Messiah? What about the one that you promised God back in Genesis 3 that is supposed to crush the head of the serpent? What about that promise? And God is saying that that promise will still be fulfilled. That promise will still be fulfilled even though Israel has turned away from God. Even though they've lifted up something else other than God, they will still receive the holy seed. At some point, Israel will be completely purified. At some point, they will no longer carry the identity of evildoers and idolaters. No longer will they be deaf, blind, or unable to feel or see God. At some point, they will be given a new identity. And this is true for for believers today that we have been given a new identity. Before Christ, we lived as described in Ephesians 2, 1, that we were dead in our trespasses. And that's why I've loved this, the going through Ephesians with Nathan, that our identity, yes, it was dead. But then later on, a few verses later, it says, we were dead in our trespasses, but God. But God stepped in. It wasn't anything I did. It wasn't anything we did. It was what God did that brought us out of that identity of sin and that identity of deadness. It's because of what God did, and because of that, we should put our identity in him. Because of that, we should put our identity in Christ because it has e- our identity in Christ will have eternal value while our identity in everything else is pointless. It's absolutely worthless. My identity as a Raiders fan is absolutely worthless for more reasons than one. 
I've been praying that God doesn't make me like other Raiders fans. Um, I like to say it's an unreached people group. Um, but our identity in Christ is so much more valuable than my identity as a husband, as the spiritual life director at HOS, or as the student ministries director here at Country Oaks. My identity in Christ should be what I'm lifting up above all things. I should be truly worshiping God by putting him above everything else in my life. It's something that that our, our identity in Christ is something that we should be spending our time on, something that should be at the forefront of our minds, something that we work on throughout our lives, because as far as our lives on earth go, it will never be fully finished. But it should be what we're fixed on and what we're striving for. And as, as this time of year comes, the, the new year, that it's a time of cultural change and, and setting new goals and setting new resolutions, that, this is my resolution for this year that I would reorient my worship to be one where I'm truly lifting God up above everything else. That it's my end goal, it's what I'm fixated on throughout really the rest of my life beyond just this one year. That I reorient my mind and my identity from being a football fan or being a Lakers fan or being a husband, uh, part of a family, working at a school, being in school, that Everything else is secondary to my identity in Christ. So I need to reorient my worship in order to do so. And that's more than just singing songs and more than just saying I'm doing things in Jesus' name. It's that I'm fixed on God and it's, he is truly lifted up before everything else. Because I've been treating Christianity like a label. Like it's something that I say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Um, I identify with other Christians. I'm part of Country Oaks. That it's become a label. It's not just something that we put in our Instagram bio with with a Bible verse and a sunflower emoji. Our identity in Christ should be much more than that. It should be our driving force in our life and other people should see it through our actions and through how we live our lives. Our faith should encompass our life. It should shape who I am. It should shape our decisions. And it should be the foundation for every single thing we do. And that's really what Ephesians is is talking about. If we turn to Ephesians 4, verse 17, it says this. Or it's, it's Paul telling us what we need to do in order to have an identity in Christ. It's his practical steps for moving forward as a Christian. It's his application to what John Piper describes God stepping in. John Piper says, His voice is the power that breaks through all the hardness and darkness and ignorance and wakens you from the hopelessness of death. And faith responds like the Gadarene demoniac in Mark 5, suddenly saved from futility of insanity and self-destruction and says, Lord, let me be with you. That when God steps in, when it says, but God, this is our response. Lord, let me be with you. Ephesians 4.17 says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. And this is going to sound familiar. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them 
due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. Paul is saying that there's a misery of life without Christ. And when he says to walk as the Gentiles do, he's talking about unbelievers, not just all Gentiles. But in the way that they walked, it was in the futility of their minds. They were darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. If we look back at, at Isaiah 1, when he's describing Israel, he says that they are a sinful, a sinful nation, children or offspring of evildoer, children who deal corruptly. Their whole head is sick, their heart is faint, from the soul even to, the, to their head, there's no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up. They're overthrown by evildoers. They are estranged from God. They are no longer with God. And it's because, as Paul's describing, they give themselves up to the things of this world. And the root problem is a hard heart. The root problem is hardness and darkness of understanding because they don't, in all reality, when we sin, we're saying we don't want God. We want this instead of God. We think that this will bring us more joy than God. But that leads us to ignorance and to hardness of heart. We're ignorant of the true value of things. We lose that eternal mindset when we see what's really valuable, what's of real worth. And we, it all leads to futility or uselessness of mind. Everything we do without God is useless and futile. Then we get to verse 23, or 22. It says, Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through your deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul is saying that you can't just believe, say that you believe in in Jesus and then live out the rest of your life like the unbelievers do. He's saying we're to put off the old self. That we're supposed to put off what what we valued before, what we lifted up and worshipped before, and to put on the new self. It's this imagery of putting on, or taking off and putting on new clothes. It's this imagery of putting on a new identity that we would be renewed in our minds and renewed in our hearts. And in a sense, that we would be purified, just like Israel or Isaiah longed to be. That we would focus on Christ. But Paul doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just say, here's what you're supposed to do with with these vague terms, put off and put on. But he gives us practical steps He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, this is verse 25, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. 
Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he might may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul's saying that we need to put off everything that defined us before. He says that a thief should no longer steal. What defined the thief is stealing, and he should no longer do it, but do honest work. That his identity in Christ would be far more than his identity in everything else. And he says to put away everything else, no corrupting talk, um, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, everything be put away from us. Get rid of all of this and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Essentially, he's saying to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. That's what Paul is saying. He's reiterating what Christ has already said. And in doing so, that we should be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That we should live and live to imitate God. That we should live in such a way that others ask, what is going on? Why is he acting that way? Why is she acting that way? But we respond with, because of God. We respond with the gospel and point others to Jesus. That ultimately we tell them we, be, we are becoming what we worship that we are becoming what we have lifted up above everything else, that we would walk in love. Paul's essentially saying that no matter what, we are going to become what we worship. We are going to become what we imitate and lift up above everything else. That what we worship shapes who we are. When I lift up things other than God, when I lift things up above him, my life starts to feel pointless and like I'm not doing anything of value. And in all honesty, it's because I'm not. It's because when I'm lifting other things up above God, in turn, I'm lifting myself up, what I want, what I desire, what I strive for above God. And if if Christ isn't in it, it's pointless. It only has earthly value, but not eternal value. But when I'm worshiping Christ, when I'm lifting him up, when I'm lifting God up above all things, then my life truly has meaning because I'm following after God and carrying out what he has called me to do, to love him and to love others. We have to find our identity outside of ourselves. We have to find our identity in God and truly worship him. If we aren't, we're just looking at ourselves in a distorted mirror, looking at ourselves in a carnival mirror and not seeing who we truly are as children of God. 
We have to put off the old self and put on the new self and reorient our worship and care and live as God has called us to. We have to work on the process of becoming like Christ, of becoming like God, of being imitators of God. Let's pray. God, for your word and for the truth that is in it, I pray that This is something that would carry us through the new year, that we would reorient our worship and reorient our priorities to reflect a life that is striving after you. I pray that we would be fixated on you and that this would carry us through the rest of our lives, God. Thank you for your son and the the payment he made on the cross for our sins so that we could truly worship you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.